Welcome to Your Cases on Hold, a JBJS podcast hosted by Antonia Chen and Andrew Schoenfeld. Here, we discuss the science in each issue of JBJS with an additional dose of entertainment and pop culture. Take us with you in the gym, on the commute, or most certainly, whenever your case is on hold. Welcome to Your Case is on Hold. This is episode 47, the December 5th issue, uh, rather the December 5th issue of the podcast or the December 6th issue of JBJS. For those who have tuned in previously, as you're probably aware, if you're new, we're going to feature and discuss some of the articles in this issue. The opinions are uh, those of myself and my co-host and do not reflect the editorial board of the journal or uh, the board of trustees. I'm Andrew Schoenfeld, uh, Deputy Editor for Methods at the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. My co-host... Dr. Antonia Chen, arthroplasty surgeon, Deputy Editor of Adult Reconstruction. All right. So we have uh, the top of the pile, uh, What's New in Musculoskeletal Basic Science by Gugala, which is permanently free. We have Dual Versus Single Plate Fixation of Displaced Mid-Shaft Clavicle Fractures, a Cost-Effectiveness Analysis by Charles. We have uh, Nutrition in Surgery and Orthopedic Perspective by Zinc. And we have What's Important, Crossing the Finish Line, Perspectives on Completing Orthopedic Surgery Training by Moses. That's also permanently free. We have Overcoming Barriers to Diversity in Orthopedic Surgery, a Global Perspective by Rama. And then the uh, AOA Critical Issue feature, which is the uh, Perceptions on the State of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion in Orthopedic Surgery, a survey of the AOA membership by Tabai. We'll now move into the headlines. Uh, I will present mine first. This is opioid analgesia compared with non-opioid analgesia after operative treatment for pediatric supracondylar humeral fractures. This is the results from a prospective multicenter trial. This is by Bellardo. It is 30 days free. So if you are listening to this uh, relatively close to the uh, issue release, um, you can get that off of the website. It also comes with a commentary so you can hear what others in the field are thinking about this work. This was a study, as is reflected in the title, that was conducted uh, in different hospitals in the United States from 2021 to 2022. They had four tertiary uh, referral children's hospitals participating. The study included 157 patients, and these are for individuals who underwent closed reduction in percutaneous pinning of supracondylar humeral fractures. It's a level two study, and the intent behind it was to look at whether opioid medications really need to be issued for children treated with this type of condition. Obviously, in recent years, there has been an effort to try to have a greater stewardship in the use of opioid uh, pain medications, and that goes across all disciplines and subspecialties in orthopedics and especially in in pediatrics where um, these children are very sensitive and their concerns about diversion as well as uh, abuse, addiction, et cetera. So um, they have a standardized dosing protocol at two hospitals, and then at the two other hospitals, they used ibuprofen and acetaminophen alone. So they have one set of hospitals that were using oxycodone, ibuprofen, and at acetaminophen, and the other one, it's the same without the uh, the oxycodone. Again, they, they had 157 patients, 
And the, you know, ultimately they found that the non-opioid analgesia for pediatric supracondylar fractures was equally effective as opioid uh, analgesia. There was a similar study to this um, that was done around hand surgery. It was one of the testable items a few years back for the web-based longitudinal assessment. There, I think the study was randomized though. Um, So here you have a different kind of, we would call it, you know, essentially quasi-randomized. The the children are randomizing themselves by showing up to hospital A versus hospital B. They don't know what the opioid protocol is going to be at one place or the other, presumably. But there, you know, there is potential concerns around cluster bias and and procedural approaches. Although ultimately, you know, closed reduction and percutaneous pinning is is pretty standard, at least as I've seen it performed in the in the various places that I've been. So I don't think that there's a whole room for a lot of clinical variation to uh, inform the determinations. And and overall, the finding was that you know in this prospective study. Children who do not take opioids are doing just as well as those those who do. Um, so they do recommend stewardship. They call this an archetypical pediatric procedure. <laughs> I don't think it's art, an archetypical pediatric procedure. I would call it a characteristic pediatric procedure, meaning like it is one that's you know relatively unique to the pediatric population. But like archetypical to me means that you know any pediatric orthopedic surgical procedure sort of could be likened to this. And that clearly isn't the the case. I don't know that there's a good pediatric procedure. So like I would consider total knee arthroplasty an archetypical orthopedic procedure. And I'm not saying that just because you're, you know, on the other side of this, but in terms of like the recovery, the limitations that you have, there's a lot of shared similarities between total hip, total knee, spine, you know, major spine surgeries, right? Like, like what somebody does, like, that's what I would call archetypical. Um, for this, I think it, it is really hard to say that there's a characteristic or rather an archetypical pediatric procedure that the performance for that is sort of translational across the entire field or representative of the entire, entire field. There's just too much variation there. But maybe that's just, you know, splitting hairs, I guess. Overall, uh, it's an interesting study. I think it provides valuable uh, detail, particularly those working in the pediatric space, those interested in opioid stewardship. I don't know that like we need a study like this for every single procedure that we do. I, I think we're you know between this and some of the work that's been done in the hand procedures, we know that like if it's soft tissue only, or in this case, you know, small percutaneous like treatment for a fracture. Right? Once you reduce the fracture and you mobilize it, like there's you know, there hopefully is not too much pain, right? Like the pain comes from the motion across the fracture site and all the muscles tightening up and all the nerves being inflamed and irritated. So if you can, you know, kind of eliminate all that, then you're just talking about like incisional pain if there's an incision or something to that effect. Agreed. Not much to uh, to bat back and forth on that one. Uh, I think that's that's going to be uh, the theme for for this uh, for for this episode. I think is like uh, papers with not too much uh, to argue on. <laughs> Not much controversy for plus yeah. minus, right? So well, my- is there controversy in in your study, a comparison of the periprosthetic fracture rate of unicompartmental and total knee replacements? This is like a study of everywhere where King Charles is king. Uh, <laughs> England, Wales, Northern Ireland, and the Isle of Man. Uh, this is by um, Mohammed and colleagues. So fill us in. 
And they also win the longest title award. So congratulations. So it's interesting to look at fracture rates compared between you know, unicompartmental neoplasty and TKA, including all fracture types. And when I say all fracture types, a lot of time, most of our studies looking at these large databases are based on fractures that come in for readmission and do some sort of change of the implant. It doesn't normally include things like ORIF or non-operative treated fractures. Now, they looked at a database from, I'm not going to repeat the name again, you've already said it, the NJR, from 2004 to 2018, so over a long period of time, which obviously fractures are treated differently over time. This also included the hospital episode statistics admitted patient care database. And the benefit of this database is it had all admission episodes for patients being admitted to the NHS hospitals. So again, these other fractures could be captured. They did over 1.1 million um, hip, sorry, 1.1 million knee replacements that were recorded and 858,000 were linked to these records that were outside of just the NJR. Then they did a pre-matching patient population and they had 743,000 patients. And then a post-matching population drastically reduced this number to 108,430 knee replacements. And they were matched between the partial knee replacements and the total knee replacements at 54,215. And they had long follow-up, which is nice, seven years plus or minus 3.7 years. This is nice with a nationalized healthcare system. The nice thing about it is they also did propensity score matching based on confounders, including comorbidities. However, they couldn't include BMI, which is something to concern that people look at when discerning between UKA versus TKA. And they did a pretty good matching. You're the stats genius here. So, you know, 0.2 standard deviation caliper width is good. And the matching ratio is one to one. And the authors use greedy matching with that replacement. So the idea is that it would be hopefully better at estimating treatment effects. So within that early time frame, and they defined that as within three months of surgery, and they think that it's attributed to surgery itself, the fracture rate was approximately 0.1% in the in the UKA group versus 0.05% in the TKA group. And the difference was significant. However, if you go to greater than three months, then it flips. Total knee replacements had a higher fracture rate versus partial knee replacements. And the 10-year cumulative fracture rate was higher for total knee replacement at 1% versus 0.6% for partial knee replacements. Now, the key factor to note is that these levels are not that high, right? But while they're statistically significant, 1% versus 0.6% is indicative of a difference, um, and the population is very um, large. So including up to and sorry, up to and including one year, the fracture rate after partial knee replacement was higher than after total knee replacement. However, over the whole 10-year period, the cumulative fracture rate after total knee osteoplasty was 1.6 times higher than a partial knee replacement. And the fracture rate after total knee replacement was about three times as high between five and 10 years as it was during the first five years. They then did subgroup analysis looking at different age groups, BMI categories, and sex. And from that, fracture rate after both procedures were higher in women, patients greater than 75 years of age compared to those who are less than 55 years of age, and patients with normal weight had higher fracture rates than obese and morbidly obese patients. Now, that's contrary to other studies and literature. Normally, obesity is the opposite. Um, obesity potentially predisposes patients to fracture. So it could be that with increased load, it did stimulate bone formation. They didn't look at implant type. So, for example, cemented versus cementless. There have been uh, large registry data showing that cementless fixation in obese patients in total knee replacements, they do better. Potentially, these patients are less active, so less likely to fracture. 
Um, it would be nice to see subgroup analysis on bone quality and smoking. These are not necessarily things you can get from the registry. Um, it also didn't address things like robotic versus non-robotic. Uh, there is a known uh, risk factor for using robotic with pin site fractures. So that wasn't included as part of the analysis. And, and the final thing is they wouldn't, while the population would be small, it doesn't include patients who were never readmitted to a hospital with a fracture. So if a patient came in and had like a patella fracture, for example, and you treat it non-operatively from the clinic, it would have never been admitted to a hospital probably. And in that case, that patient wouldn't have been captured. So interesting data. Um, it shows early versus late differences in fracture rates, but um, nothing too controversial here, I would say. Yeah, I mean, one thing that I would say when you have numbers that are this large and you're using a caliper of 0.2, that's pretty permissive. That doesn't mean it's bad or that it's wrong. It's just that it's permissive. Yeah, I mean, my my question when you're doing propensity score matching, like first off, not every patient is going to be a candidate for unicompartmental, right? And how many patients who just have, you know, I don't do these procedures, so I'm asking you. Like you see someone who has that just single compartment that has the arthritis in it that will allow them to qualify for a unicompartmental. And how often do you say, man, I'm just going to do a total knee? It's not that that common. I will say though that patients, um, it's, it's a shared decision-making truly. I'll tell patients that partial, there may be a partial knee replacement candidate, but the literature shows that on average, seven to 10 years afterwards, you may develop arthritis in another compartment and undergo a total knee replacement. And some of my patients in their 70s or 80s will be like, well, I just want one and done, you know, and just do one procedure, get a total knee replacement and not do a partial knee replacement. Um, so it is hard to say. Um, there is probably a bigger conversion over than uh, we would probably expect in the past per se, but our uni compartmental knee replacements are doing really well now. Um, so it's it's not very common, I will say, but it does happen. So, you know, moving forward from that, what, what, what I, the you know, the way I see it is that certainly there are individuals who will not qualify for unicompartmental who qualify for total knee. And I, I'm not really convinced that based on this data set, they have the clinical granularity to say all of these cases that they're looking at, it could have gone either way. I know they're doing the propensity score matching, and that's ideally what you do get from a robust, well-specified propensity score study. You get that causal, in, it's a causal inference test. But I don't think that they have the data to really parse that out. So you're getting patients with like a, you know, the holistic appreciation of the individual may be sort of what could go either way. But I don't know that you're really getting it just from the the character of the joint itself. And, you know, I just ideally, you know, based on this, if everyone had unicompartmentals instead of total knees, what this study is suggesting is that there would be a, uh, you know, essentially a 50% reduction. You know, they're, they're saying it's almost doubled. It's 0.6 versus one. It's not exactly, but, you know, that, that means that everyone would go to the 0.6% rate, right? For instead of the 1% rate. And and I don't, I don't think that, that that plays out. Yeah, there's too many variables that are included in it saying like, well, if we're going to reduce fracture risk, then we just do a total in everyone. So there's too many other variables that need to be added to that as outcomes too. That besides just periprosthetic fracture. All right. But, uh, you know, interesting study, a lot of patients, um, food for thought, certainly. All right. Let's uh, move into the your cases on hold uh, featurette. This is long term health outcomes of limb salvage compared with amputation for combat related trauma by Trof and colleagues. 
This uh, does have an uh, associated infographic. This study comes from uh, Walter Reed uh, National Military Medical Center. You know, just recently uh, in the November podcast, uh, we covered a similar study on Hounsfield units uh, in this group, also around amputation. This here, uh, you know, I think is something that comes up fairly frequently when looking at limb salvage. There's a debate on, you know, do you try to preserve the limb to the fullest extent possible? And then the patients end up having like many more surgeries and a lot of, you know, medical encounters and exposures. And then sometimes they they just end up needing the amputation anyway, or do you kind of move to the to, to the amputation? Obviously, this is a uh, combat-related cohort, so military affiliation, individuals uh, who um, underwent, you know, the injuries that led to these types of surgeries between 2005 and 2011. So now, you know, quite more than a decade passed in the, the highest uh, tempo periods of the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. So ultimately, they had 110 patients, 56 who underwent limb salvage and 54 who underwent unilateral amputation. They have a lot of comparisons, you know, where there's not a whole lot of differences. This is a military population. So you you would expect there's there's going to be less variation in terms of BMI and physical fitness and things like that, at least at the time of uh, initial injury. Um, but you know they're they're very interested in looking at the development of metabolic comorbidities, which we know uh, can be very common after severe limb injuries and certainly after amputation. So you know they are careful to say with the numbers available, and I think that's an important point. Uh, they could not demonstrate a difference in the risk for development of hypertension, hyperlipidemia, diabetes, heart disease. It may also be that this is a relatively young cohort, so not enough time has truly passed for those things to, to, to develop. Certainly, amputations may and are medically necessary in some respects after limb, uh, severe limb injury, but limb loss may negatively impact metabolic regulation and contribute to a higher risk uh, despite. The, the beneficial effects on mobility. And that's that's the real, you know, kind of trade-off. So a lot of this wall, you know, it's a it's a nice study because they do have longitudinal follow-up on a relatively uh, high number of patients for this type of issue. When you break down, if you look at their table five, you know, you're talking about they have one patient with heart disease in the limb salvage group versus three in the amputation group. If you're just going off of the percentage numbers, that's actually 2% versus 6%, so three times the risk, right? But they can't show that it's significant because the numbers are so you know incredibly small. Ultimately, I think that this is leaves more kind of hypotheticals and theoreticals than it does provide significant actionable information. You know, an interesting study, nice to have these, you know, longitudinal follow-up. If they can do it in another 10 years, um, and and look at you know, where these folks are, you know, coming up on 25 years after the amputation versus the attempts at limb salvage, maybe some things will change. But but with those studies, you, you do end up losing more patients and your your power just continues to truncate over time. And that's also a, a problem. That's a lot. I mean, it's one of those things where we always want to look long term, right? And we want to see how people do over time, but we you do lose power over time. So we love long term follow up. I had a colleague who used to say nothing, nothing dampens enthusiasm for surgery like long-term follow-up. I would also say 
nothing dampens enthusiasm for longitudinal research like long-term follow-up because <laughs> you're like we're going to have like 250 patients that we're going to follow over the course of 10 15 years and then when you get to the end of it there's like five people have shown up <laughs> <laughs> if you're lucky if you're right. lucky. <laughs> All right, let's move into honorable mentions. Um, we've got uh, two to five year outcomes of total ankle arthroplasty with the infinity fixed bearing implant, a concise follow up of a previous report by Townsend. This has an infographic and is permanently free. This is a follow up report of a multi center non designer prospective observational study. What does non designer mean? Like, it's not the Louis Vuitton implants. Like, we didn't do the Gucci implants, we went with the the American Eagle ones. <laughs> that the, They're the not people who designed them, so they're a little bit less conflicted. How's that? There we go. It's All still right. Louis Vuitton style, but... <laughs> Just not Virgil Abloh. Exactly. Right? Not, not Virgil. Now, uh, Pharrell. There was a significant improvement across all functional outcome scores from baseline at two years. It's, you know, an interesting longitudinal follow-up study. It is graded level two. Again, you know, they do have a large number of implants. So um, interesting work and um, nice to have that kind of longer term follow up. And then last, we have long term outcomes of non-surgical treatment of thumb carpal metacarpal osteoarthritis, a cohort study by Esteban Lopez and colleagues. This does have an infographic and a visual summary and is permanently free. So you hit the trifecta there. This study is looking at outcomes with median follow up of 6.6 years. On the MHQ pain subscale, uh, they found positive outcomes at greater than five years of follow-up for non-surgical treatment of CMC1 osteoarthritis, no worsening of pain or of limitations in ADL after 12 months. They also grade this a level two therapeutic study. So interesting cohort work from the hand-wrist study group. Uh, definitely do check that out if you uh, get the chance. Um, that's going to bring us to the uh, end of this episode. We're about out of time, but right on time in terms of our scheduled time. We'll try to do better next time. Love it. See you next time. 